Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. In the previous episode, you could learn more about cancer care and IT in South America with Luis Santiago, CEO of Pegasi. In 2021, we gave our platform for free for the Venezuelan Cancer Anti-Cancer Society to use in their facilities. And there, there was no work for them to start using the platform because they didn't have good internet access. Venezuela still depends on Cantebe, which is the national telecommunications company, to provide internet because private internet is quite expensive. It can run $400 to $1,000 per month. But usually in this type of charitable organizations, they don't have that kind of budget. And even if you pay for a private vendor, then internet is super lagging. Like, Usually what we do in a vendor, like a batch process that we run in 30 seconds in Venezuela can take five to six minutes. Today, we're moving to Mexico. I spoke with Rafael Lopez, CEO of Diagnostic Care, a personalized and convenient primary care service provider in Mexico, which is currently used by over 200,000 people in Mexico. Mexico has 126 million people, which is a bit more than half as much as Brazil in South America, or three times as much as Argentina, which we also discussed in one of the previous episodes as well. Mexico has a predominantly public healthcare system. There are only 2.4 doctors per 1,000 people, which is heavily below the OECD average. Just for comparison, the number of doctors per 1,000 people in the US is 2.6, but Denmark or Sweden, on the other hand, have 4.3 doctors per 1,000 people. Diagnostic Care works with employers to provide primary care, preventative and mental health services to its customers. Rafael and I talked about the insights in the digital patient experience in Mexico, what is the infrastructure like on the national level, how much room for digital innovation does the country have, and more. Enjoy the show, and if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Additionally, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. The newsletter is published only once a month and brings to you a deep summary of one of the topics that we cover in the show. Now let's dive in today's discussion. Rafael, welcome to the discussion on faces of digital health about healthcare digitalization, digital health and telemedicine in Mexico more specifically. We've had quite a few discussions about the state of healthcare and digitalization in the LATAM region recently. And as in other places across the world, telemedicine has spiked because of the pandemic. Unlike in Asia, the, there seem to be more challenges with connectivity 
in some places, as some of the speakers have shared, but progress is being made. So maybe we can start with a very broad question about your observation of the region, the state of digitalization, and maybe dive a little bit deeper in the observations in Mexico, more specifically where you are most active. True. Thanks for the opportunity. It's a pleasure for me to join your podcast and share what's the state of digital health in Mexico, being this country of over 120 million people after Brazil, the biggest one in, in, in the region, but still not free from challenges when it comes to healthcare as a whole, access to care, and how is that digital health actually plays a significant role in, in allowing people to have this access breach. Interestingly, I was looking at stats the other day, the most updated ones, and actually it's over half of the internet users in Mexico, which actually account for over 100 million people, claim to be familiar somehow with any sort of digital health services. The thing is, yet only 15% have actually used these services. And although there are, I think, at least anything between 500 to 1,000 digital health applications that you would consider as being available for the Mexican population, the majority of these applications fall within the pharmaceuticals or pharmacy, retail pharmacy space or e-commerce platform. So this definitely brings the number up because certainly a vast majority of people do purchases online when it comes to buying over-the-counter medications. And this is obviously counting towards the use of digital health, although it might not be necessarily considered digital health as we might understand it in the form of a wellness application or telemedicine service. There are a few telemedicine applications out there as well, but still the market remains in its very early, early stages. I would say still fragmented, pretty diverse when it comes to the offering out there. And interestingly, it's until recently that the regulator called COFEPRIS, which is, let's say, the equivalent to the FDA in the United States, is putting close eye into how this sort of application should be regulated. That's actually good news, no? taking into account that they're actually expecting further utilization on these sort of applications and therefore want to make sure that the services provided through these applications are safe, uh, ultimately for the patient, but still long way to go in the digital health landscape in this country. That's a great overview and I wonder if you could expand on it from the public health or just public healthcare infrastructure perspective, because oftentimes these days countries would say that basically they've got electronic healthcare records and many things are digitized, but that means different things to different people. Oftentimes patients, if they visit more healthcare providers, they have to access the data through several portals so nothing is really centralized and in one place that's up to the patient to to consolidate how is that in mexico according to your assessment and also how does diagnostic care maybe fall into that picture because you are a personalized primary care service provider and yeah maybe you can put it into the context of the other national infrastructure that's there 
Absolutely. And I think before digging into the picture from, let's say, technological infrastructure perspective, from a primary care perspective as a whole, the World Health Organization typically has this ratios as to how many doctors they suggest per thousand people. I believe the suggested average is something around two, 2.5 doctors. In Mexico, we're less than two doctors per thousand people. It's almost one third deficit or almost we are missing one doctor per thousand people, according to what the WHO would suggest. It starts from there because there are still, as I stated in my initial intervention, massive access opportunities, particularly when it comes to rural regions in the country and the deficits that this might represent. Typically, as it happens in, in every massive country the size of Mexico with this number of population, better infrastructure and services are available in the bigger cities, just Mexico City, where we are, Guadalajara, Monterrey, a few other cities that obviously account as well for the, the highest ones on the GDP perspective. But still, a long way to go when it comes to simply providing basic healthcare services. For the government, in many cases, focusing on narrowing that gap between people accessing basic care systems has been a priority rather than investing in technology infrastructure. When it comes to technology infrastructure, I would say the state of Mexico in that respect is still, there's been work done, it's still maturing. It's facing challenges no? in terms of, I'd say, unified standards. Maybe the investment hasn't been the right one when it comes to these sort of initiatives and also maybe limited awareness as well among the different providers. As said, there are actually a couple of uh, government initiatives around electronic uh, data exchange no? between uh, different government institutions. I think that's been done pretty well when it comes to just looking at the government cell. However, when you bring in into the equation the private sector, that's where some, let's say, inter-exchange challenges begin. The standards around uh, IT transfer are still, as I said, in the early, in the early days. No? There's still a long way to go when it comes to defining a universal standard for health records to being exchanged between public institutions and private institutions. And the fact that most of the people that at least can afford a certain level of private care end up going to get those type of services in the private space, then right from there, there's a link break between government sharing patient data with private institutions or the other way around. There's efforts being made to sum it up, but still a long way to go as well when it comes to defining standards and a proper investment or infrastructure plan to make sure everyone can leverage the power of data at the end mm -hmm. of the day. So how does diagnostic care fall into that whole story? As we mentioned, you're providing primary care services and you also mentioned that there's a low number of clinicians on the population. So what does that actually mean? Do clinicians that work for you work only for you how, what's the relationship there? Yeah, it's very interesting because even though there is a lower number of clinicians per thousand people, as the WHO would suggest, we've always said it's, it's also a problem of how is actually a supply and demand 
connected, no? because you don't necessarily face challenges of uh, capacity, let's say, in, in, in bigger cities. No? However, if you start looking or digging into rural areas, rural regions, or even smaller cities within the country, that's where you might start seeing these breaches or these opportunities in terms of how many clinics are available for people to get even basic primary care. And that's where an important private player being the retail pharmacies chains have, have looked at this opportunity and made the most out of it by starting these doctor's offices next to the pharmacies. That's a different story, but what I want to say is, although we have a shortage of doctors from a nationwide perspective, in some cities, it might be a different, a different story. However, when we started the company almost four years ago, I believe, in the very, very early days. This is a business that was founded by me and my brother, who happens to be a medical doctor. So he has always had a foot in the healthcare sector, understands the challenges, both from a public and private perspective, and also from a population perspective, which has been extraordinary to, to have someone firsthand providing those insights into the business and into how we decided to build this from scratch, we said, okay, what's the best way to actually connect supply with demand in a slightly different form than the typical two-sided market approach in which any doctor can jump into our platform to provide services for, for patients. We took a slightly different path, wanting to focus very much on quality of care, just as you mentioned, a personalized approach and a strong effort on preventative and promotion of care taking into account as well that chronic diseases in Mexico are on the rise, hypertension, diabetes, you know, th these type of diseases that typically begin early on due to a lack of culture, a lack of healthy habits from the early days. And that's where we are mostly focusing our efforts, apart from being a primary care or a virtual primary care provider. We somehow, or it's a hybrid model, we employ clinicians on a full-time basis, depending on our schedule and on how we need them to fulfill the demand that we have. And in some other cases, some clinicians work for us just for certain time slots or hours. And again, based on how we are fulfilling our demand. When it comes to those that are on a part-time basis, they typically have day jobs or night jobs at private clinics, or in some cases at government clinics as well, or hospitals. And for those that we have employed full-time, it's almost as if this were their, we were their clinic in which they work, with the difference that it's mostly mostly virtual. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's how it works from a staff fulfillment perspective. So how many clinicians do you currently have on the platform and how many patients? And what I'm curious to hear there is if you perhaps remember how you got the first clinician to work with you. I've been thinking about this lately, how we usually talk to companies once they already have a lot of traction. So we tend to forget on what it takes to, to get there in those first initial stages. Yeah. And just as I said, my brother being, being a doctor, he's part of the healthcare sector. He's been, he's been a doctor for over 10 years now, working for both public and private sector. That wasn't hard for us. No? The process to bring on board our first clinician was pretty seamless in that sense. We actually had quite a few options to pick up from. This is maybe 
late 2019, something like that, no? when we started actually providing care and needed some uh, initially one doctor to, to fulfill that demand. Uh, if I am right, I think my brother must have uh, provided several virtual visits as well. In, in those days, people getting care from him obviously didn't expect that they were, had no idea that they were speaking to one of the founders of the business, no? but he was actually very much with his feet in the process to understand what was the best way to actually provide care, again, through digital means, but without losing the personal aspect, the warmth of the interaction. And actually that served as an input to the care delivery model that we've created, which complements a very strong data collection and algorithm aspect before allowing the patient to speak to the clinician. So yeah, getting our first clinician wasn't hard. We soon found that we needed more than one. No, one was not enough to fulfill the demand that we were having. So quickly expanded to two and then three, maybe in the in just a few months, two or three months. It, it was a staff of two, two and a half, as far as I remember. Our initial breakthrough from a service perspective came in the form of a distribution partnership. Back in the days, we were in conversations with an HR benefits company that were mostly focused on financial services and other sort of benefits for employees. So we thought there was a natural synergy on them offering as well this primary care support. So through their platform, we were able to offer access to our services for their user base. I believe back in the days must have been anything between 10 to 15,000 users that started having access to our service. And maybe within the first six months, I think we reach approximately 1,000 to 2,000 people, maybe providing, I think it was anything between five to 10 visits per week, something like that. As of today, our service is available to over 200,000 people. We are providing anything between 1,000 to 3,000 visits per week in the mix of prevention, mental health, which we also offer nutritionist support, pediatrics as well. So obviously the scope of services has widened in that sense. The in-house clinical staff is comprised of 12 clinicians. As I think a new one is joining tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. That's enough for us to surface the weekly demand that we are able to forecast based on real-time data. And as I said, we have another, let's say, on the bench staff that allows us to increase the capacity to nearly twice or three times the capacity very shortly within just 24 hours, depending on how we are foreseeing demand. The time in which we needed the most number of clinicians was actually, funnily, in the last bit of the pandemic. At the beginning, we used a lot of technology. While the COVID was just commencing, we used a lot of technology to be able to triage which people needed to speak to a physician and who could be actually treated just with digital recommendations. But then as the pandemic started to come to an end somehow, uh, people had a lot of questions as to, should I have another test? Am I able to mix this medication with this other or whatever? So that's when we saw a peak in demand. And as of today, it remains fairly stable. We typically see peaks in demand when we sign up a new client, a new partnership agreement. That's where it becomes a bit of a novelty for our users, but more in the form of, again, preventative care, healthcare promotion. So we've managed 
to, I mean, we have a very competent team, a head of clinical operations running all that part of the business. So we've managed to provide timely, accurate care to everyone that's entitled to, to get care from us. And in which countries are you currently operating apart from Mexico? Is it just Mexico? At the moment, it's just Mexico. However, we have already an expansion plan in place for mainly Latin American countries. This expansion plan will most likely start with Argentina and then will start falling into other Latin American countries, the likes of Chile, Paraguay, and maybe we'll start looking as well into some of the Central American countries, Guatemala, Costa Rica. Those are also within the market assessment plans. But yes, as of today, it's just Mexico and soon a couple more in the region. Why Argentina? One of our clients, which is this very popular food chain, hamburger food chain, these guys have obviously presence in, in the whole region. We've been so successful working with them in Mexico. The healthcare platform that we've provided, the service that we've provided has been so well received that they want to expand the uh, access uh, of our service and, and the ability for not just their employees in Mexico, but in the entire region to have access. And Argentina is the second most important market in which they operate. So that's naturally forcing us to start the rollout from Argentina. And what's the cost structure of your services? Is it just a thing that the employer needs to take care of, so the partners that you're working with, or does it also fall on the patient? It's got me wondering like, how this whole model fits into the public healthcare system. Do you just have clients that basically have private health insurance only because sometimes if you've got like the public and the private system telemedicine solution providers are there mostly to provide consultations more of a second opinion type of thing but they can't really do sick leave notes or have some sort of limitations compared to those that are already in the system. So what's the relationship there? Yeah, very interesting questions. Let's take a step back to provide the context. By law, Mexican companies are obliged to enroll their employees into social security services. So that's a tax that you as a company have to pay to the state in order to, let's say, enroll and have your employees within or being part of the Mexican healthcare system, which is called IMSS. It's a Mexican Institute of Social Security Services. And that's where you typically seek for care, if even primary care or specialty care, if you work for a company. The thing is, given the, the fragmentation of the public healthcare system and the disparity in infrastructure and resources in some regions and in some cases, people typically end up seeking care through private means. What happens here? There's only maybe 8%, 9% of the population in Mexico having access to private healthcare insurance. A vast majority of these people having access to private insurance is through their company. So obviously, every single major insurance company has presence in Mexico. Big names are here obviously with other insurance products, but care as well. What you'll find is it's typically just from certain hierarchical levels within the organizations, within the corporations, that people get private insurance. From certain, let's say, managerial levels 
towards executive directors getting private insurance. The rest of people formally employed might only have access to the social security services, which in turn they might decide not to use given these inefficiencies or long waiting times, etc. What we've built in terms of value prop for employers allows employers to either cover the whole scope of our services and basically subsidize at 100% our service for their employers. And in exchange, they get a tax incentive by the state for doing that. So it's basically if you hire a private healthcare company to look at to look after your employees' health, you get a tax incentive. So that's it's attractive from that sense. Or a hybrid approach in which they might just pay for a part of the service, whether that is the preventative and promotional aspect of it, or just a certain number of visits throughout the year, and then leaving the rest for the employee to pay for it at discounted prices, which is actually what most of employees do nowadays without having a service like ours. Even though they have access to the to the public healthcare institutions, they end up paying out of pocket. No, and no wonder why out of pocket expense in Mexico is amongst the highest. No, as a result and a consequence of all the other things that we've that I've discussed in, from a public landscape. So that's basically yeah how it works. One thing that's got me thinking usually when it comes to innovation and when thinking about what kind of business models are going to work the often direction is to go to the private market to the private insurance to where the buying power is in essence so do you see that any innovation that's happening there would slowly then also transition in the public system. What's your general observation around that? Yeah, very interesting. I think and some of what the things that we've seen in the space is solutions or innovations with the highest chances to transpose and to be part of the public system would definitely be those that either create efficiencies or reduce costs in, in, in the expenditure, in the public expenditure or are actually solving a true need that government entities might have. One example is certainly on the health records, no? the electronic records space, where, again, there is no single platform. Obviously, governments work with their own platforms, and in some cases, as I said, information is actually being exchanged and shared. But again, it's still fragmented in the sense of standards and in the sense of, let's say, a universal technological platform that can serve as a link between public or private services. So definitely there's opportunity for innovation to permeate and integrate within the public space. Other sort of innovations around, let's say, lab testing or anything that can be carried out at a low cost approach to serve mostly rural areas or states or regions in which people struggle to typically get care maybe within a couple days. No, there's also massive opportunity there. And I would say more in the form of partnerships or alliances in which government institutions, particularly the Ministry of Health or even the Social Security Institute, might leverage these sort of 
innovations to work jointly for the benefit of patients. Certainly when it comes to access in the form of clinics, even this type of remote clinics no, that are able to iterate between locations and are actually like a lab test and a doctor's office built on top of a car or of a, a trailer. Those are the type of solutions or services in which there's certainly synergies between government needs and the, what the private space is building. No? That's where we would see the majority mm -hmm. of them. One thing that I think is worth mentioning when it comes to Mexico is also the migrations that are happening to the U.S., So people move to the U.S. or migrate to the U.S. for job opportunities. They send a lot of money back for their families. And a lot of that, basically, a lot of that money is also spent for healthcare. They come back to receive healthcare services. And also people from the U.S. might come to Mexico to receive more affordable care. True. So how do you see that? Is there... Is that impacting your services and service provision as well? And Or are there specific solutions that are addressing that specific? Yeah, when it comes to the border you know, between Mexico and the States and this whole immigrant healthcare space, and also you mentioned the tourist, the healthcare tourism, which is, I would treat that as a separate topic because just as you say, a lot of, a lot of people from the States do come to Mexico to get care cheaper, but maybe for different procedures or surgeries, etc. So if we leave that aside, when it comes to, let's say, fulfilling basic care needs, the primary care approach, there's definitely opportunity from a digital health perspective to enhance access. And just as you said, overcome challenges like lack of insurance, cultural barriers, language, or feeling more comfortable speaking with, with a Mexican doctor, even high-cost prices for these type of services in the States. There are actually, I believe, a couple of U.S.-based companies focusing solely on the Latino population in, in, in the States to overcome these, these challenges, these opportunities. We've been exploring the space from a slightly different angle, although focusing on the, same, on the same goal. And when I mentioned from a slightly different angle, this is, again, through distribution partnerships with the financial sector. Because just as you said, the, the money being sent for, from the immigrants in the States to their relatives in Mexico accounts for the, the greater number of money that we get as a country from abroad. No, it's, it's, it's a massive amount of money. I don't have it fresh in my head now. But that, that, that's a natural channel to, to get these patients by bundling or embedding a digital health solution as an add-on or, or as an extra offering within the financial product that these people typically use to look after their relatives in Mexico or the other way around when it comes to paying back with access to these sort of services. It's important to bear in mind as well that the, most of these people might not have all their documents, might not be compliant with all their documents, their legal migrant documents in the States. Therefore, since they are Mexicans, they can actually get care through a Mexican company, just as it would happen with us no, remotely. But again, there are some regulatory aspects that need to be taken into consideration when providing care abroad 
who's the patient? Is this patient a Mexican people or from other country, no? maybe other Latino country? Can we actually identify who this patient is? And from some of the challenges and the assessment that we've made, most of these people actually, it's not that they lack, that, that they lack ID or documents, but they tend to not provide a lot of personal information because they might fear that sharing personal information with a third party, in this case being a healthcare service provider, might have consequences with their immigrant status in, in, in the States mostly. No? So there are other, let's say, factors involved in this equation that needs to be, they need to be looked after apart from just focusing on the service provision itself, no? So, in a way, making sure that a solution that somebody uses doesn't really get that person in trouble in some way. The thing with migrant healthcare, I think mm -hmm. it has more to do with a cultural aspect. It's a matter of how you as a healthcare company or a digital health company are able to transmit and to let this, these potential patients know that by having access to your service or by, by getting care through you, Even if it's just a, an advice, there is no direct relation between you as a healthcare company looking after them and providing care with any other authorities or legal authority that might jeopardize their status or their legal status in the country, in this case, the state. So yeah, it comes down to, I think, more an educational and informational aspect to things, an approach to how do you actually convince people that getting care virtually, maybe with the Mexican doctors that in which they will find more familiar to talk to, has no implications or there's no risk for them that having that might impact, again, their legal status. Definitely a challenge no? because there's a vast market in the States that could actually benefit from having access to these sort of cost-efficient option and cultural or lower down these cultural barriers. But still, I'd say when it comes to us, we are very much aware and convinced that the opportunity in Mexico remains massive. No, I wouldn't say we've discarded expanding towards that segment of the population, but still there's so many things to improve in, in our daily access to these sort of solutions, that's where our most effort has been put into work. Is there anything else that you would add in terms of any cultural aspects that are useful for, to know, either for those trying to enter the market in Mexico to provide services, to expand from other markets, and also in regards to the usage of healthcare services. I always am looking at healthcare expenditure, so the percentage of GDP that the country mm -hmm. spends on healthcare, and in Mexico that's quite significantly lower compared to the OECD uh, average. It was 5.7% uh, of GDP in 2015. Right. It's quite an old in data point. But still, even if the expenditure is low, that doesn't necessarily mean that, for example, the digital infrastructure is super poor. So how do you see that specific data point? What does yeah, it even mean in the Mexican yeah, context? I would say, yeah, despite, despite the country's lower healthcare spending, I think there's a big opportunity, especially in digital health, actually driven by this rising demand for efficiency and wide-reaching 
healthcare services, just as I said before, when it comes to reaching remote areas or regions in the country in which accessing care is harder and you might have people that need to travel two hours to, to get to a primary care clinic. So it's everything connected somehow. I believe cost-efficient solutions, just as we were saying, provided by digital health technologies or even, let's say, AI-powered diagnostic tools or remote monitoring systems, I think are strong cases for healthcare innovation no? with this low expenditure scenario. Also, just as I said, the public and private partnerships are also a big opportunity to integrate certain solutions into the actual infrastructure uh, and most likely with shorter uh, deployment times no? that it would be if the project would be solely in government hands. No? That's where the synergy between public and private could actually create bigger value. And also even from a data analytics point of view, the large volume of data that digital health solutions collect, even like we do, no, can also be put into work for improving digital health outcomes in this sense or works somehow towards a more standardized infrastructure, obviously taking into account privacy concerns, regulatory aspects, etc. When it comes to the country, again, as a whole, from, a, from an opportunity perspective, and I think it's important to mention, we lack a gatekeeping approach to care or a tiered level, as you might experience in Europe, no? in which you face or you meet with the primary care physician first, and then this referral system gets into play if you actually need to see someone else. That approach is notably absent in, in Mexico. No? I think it's, it's a combination of, obviously, inequalities in access, and cultural understanding as to how health services should work. The public healthcare system back in the days, I believe maybe in the 60s, 50s, was actually designed to work that way. No? You go to the primary care physician, he basically looks after you throughout your life and only points out to the next level of care or to the other doctor based on his initial or her initial assessment. It worked out that way back in the days where population was way smaller than it is now and there wasn't that many financial and infrastructure challenges and political challenges. Nowadays, in that regard, it's a bit of a mix. No? You can actually go see a special clinic or go meet a specialty doctor in almost any area without actually having to go through a primary care physician first. I'm speaking about the private sector, but again, that's where the inequalities come into place because people that somehow can afford paying for private services, they don't understand, they don't see in, in, in the model of care why the right way or the right approach or a more optimal and efficient approach should be holding a strong relationship with your GP or your PCP before actually making decisions on, on, on where to see next. It's not uncommon to see in social media in, in Mexico people asking for recommendations on does anyone know a good gastroenterologist or a good cardiologist, etc., as if you were recommending a restaurant, for instance. I think it's quite, it's not that uncommon that basically people would search for clinicians 
through word of mouth and just trust that somebody else might have or experience somebody else might have. In one of the previous episodes, I was actually speaking to a U.S. entrepreneur who was basically working in Vietnam, mm. and she set up a data platform to act to address that problem one more question so sure. since you started talking so much about data and the fact that you are also gathering a lot of it what can you actually do with it do you do any additional research what are the legal and regulatory limits that you have in terms of the utilization and mining of the data there's obviously a regulation in place in the country for sensitive data managing data that is owned by individuals. However, there is actually not a specific data standard or government governing approach to healthcare data as you might find in the States with the HIPAA aspect or even GDPR in Europe being slightly much more specific in that regards. We we are very, let's say, strict with how we manage patients' data. No? There are certainly some local norms and regulations as to how you should store electronic health records data. We are fully compliant in that sense and also being super transparent with our patients on how their data is being used. And we typically use it just for, let's say, internal research purposes to and to feed our systems and to provide even more personalized care or recommendations or service offerings to our patients based on the type of interactions that they've had with us. So obviously the vast amount of data points that we have from our patients are solely intended to understand what's going on with those patients, both at an individual level and at population level as well, in order for us to work towards a much more personalized value proposition no? when it comes to preventative care mostly. Let's say we are very good at identifying risk profiles within our patients. So it's quite easy for us to trigger healthcare campaigns that are actually targeting people with obesity or risk of diabetes or smokers or any sort of risk profile that you might want to put into the equation. It's easy for us to, to tie those profiles with what type of healthcare actions can be triggered. And when it comes to the other stakeholders that we work with, no, mostly companies, insurance companies, we are allowed to share data in an anonymized way no, as a whole for them to say, okay, 30% of my people face anxiety problems or last month, 5% of my employee-based faced respiratory issues or whatever, as long as we are not sharing who is behind that data point. And the only way in which we can do that is by getting the explicit consent from the patient saying, okay, I am okay by sharing this healthcare data with my employer, just as I would do if I had to go to the doctor and then provide certain evidence to my employer. So that's somehow how it works. There's still, just as it's early days for the IT interoperability, healthcare interoperability in the country, there's also early days for data governance when it comes to healthcare data for sure. So yeah, what we've done is stick to the actual 
regulation be fully compliant with current law and norms in terms of uh, sensitive data. And also, I think it, it all comes down to transparency and trust. One of our key values as a company and what we do with people that work here and people that trust us for looking after their health in the form of patients or clients, etc., is it's all about trust. Now, if you are able, you're putting your health in someone else's hands, and in this case, it's through a digital technology, through digital means, so it starts with trust and it ends with trust. Now it starts with me trusting this digital service that is making the best use of my data and they are making the best use of their ability to provide me care. And that's where we focus the most, to be honest. Now, how are we uh, becoming a trustworthy entity, a trustworthy digital health uh, company for all our stakeholders? You mentioned quite a few interesting examples around the potentials of the use of data and, for example, targeting individuals with specific interventions and awareness campaigns about their problems that they might have. So I would love to dig further into that and learn like how, what did you find out that actually works because so much in healthcare and health is related to behavioral change and not uh, there's a low number of things that stick in the long run, but maybe so we don't dive too much into to another uh, topic, just as a final thought and just as a wrap up of this discussion. Is there anything that kind of surprised you so far out of the findings that came out of all the work that you've done so far? And are there any ideas that you can share around how you see the development of services in the future? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of sur being surprised out of the findings, I would say from 10,000 feet above, what we see with our patients in terms of their health condition, in terms of the diseases they face, or in terms of how we provide care or why, what's the reason why they come to us, it's mostly reflect on the national statistics. So when we compare our top 10 conditions that we treat when we compare the risk profiles or users of our population within the platform. It's almost a reflect of what's happening nation, nationwide. The good thing, though, is we are contributing in a way to the bigger effort. Everyone that's working in the healthcare space, either from a private or public stand, no, has this should have this goal, major aim, this why you're doing this, because basically you want to improve people's quality of life. So that's interesting. One of the other aspects that has been, let's say, surprising to us when it comes to specific services is, I believe the number is 54, 55% of the people that have used our service to get either nutritional advice nutritional guidance through one of our clinicians or mental health support through one of our psychologists. It's the first time they have access to one of these services through us. So that accounts for the fact, shows to the state that in certain segments of the population, in certain regions, getting this type of care, which is also healthcare, no? but in the form of how should you eat more from a preventative side 
and the mental health side of things, which is thankfully now seen as important as physical health, is still being seen as a luxury. No, it's people, obviously, they find care, medical care, one way or another. But if it wasn't for the fact that they have access to our service through their employer, they have never had gotten maybe the advice or the coaching from a mental health specialist or from a clinical uh, nutritionist to teach them or to provide advice as to what's the best way to combine foods or what's actually the impact of, of certain foods or the sugar, etc. No, so it's that's interesting to to realize how is that we are actually not only narrowing that gap, no, but making something that should be a universal right accessible and available to to more people out there. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to the show, or follow us on LinkedIn. Additionally, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Stay tuned.